0: Please open your Bibles with me to First Timothy chapter four. First Timothy chapter four. We are glad to be back with you this morning. Our family missed you as we were away last week, so I'm grateful to to be back here with you this morning. And grateful to jump back into 1 Timothy together. It's been a couple months since we've been in this book, so I'm excited to, to keep moving forward in 1 Timothy. But before we do so, I want us to consider something for just a moment. I want us to think about Switzerland. More specifically, what Switzerland is famous for. Maybe it's luxury chocolates or majestic views of the Alps or most simply, Swiss cheese. But I think Switzerland is arguably most famous for its policy of neutrality, meaning that the country refuses to take sides. The history books remind us that, remarkably, the Swiss even remained neutral during both World War I and World War II, while the rest of Europe was collapsing in military conflict around them. And in May of this year, Time magazine interviewed Thomas Barrer. Who's identified as the architect of Swiss neutrality. In the early 90s, Barrera was the one who led the charge for the Swiss official adoption of their position of neutrality, although it had already been ingrained in the culture for centuries. But 30 years later, Barrera's thoughts on the possibility of neutrality have changed dramatically. Today, he seems to agree with others who call it a national myth. He's begun to see neutrality as unrealistic, maybe even impossible in today's world. So by now you're probably thinking, what does Switzerland have to do with First Timothy? Well, here it is. Although it might be impossible to be politically neutral, it is certainly impossible to be spiritually neutral. And this is what the Apostle Paul is driving home in our passage this morning. When it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no such thing as being neutral. We will either be committed to the gospel or we will not. We will either be devoted to true teaching or to false teaching. There is no middle ground. And as we saw back in 1 Timothy 3, the Lord has ordained his church to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And of course, this demands that the church would reject what is false, holding fast to the truth to the very end. That's why I've titled this sermon this morning, Who Will Have the Last Word? Who Will Have the Last Word? I'm grateful to know that many of you in this room this morning already desire that the Lord would be the one who has the last word. But if this is not true of your life, My hope is to help you see that there is nothing more significant. I hope that as we look at 1 Timothy 4 verses 1 through 5 this morning, that we would all become convinced of this main truth. Everything depends on whose word we trust. Everything depends on whose word we trust. But if we are to trust in the Lord, we need to seek his help in prayer once more. Please pray pray with me. Our Father, we come before you this morning and we do desire that you would have the last word. God, would you speak to us through your word this morning? Would you give us ears to hear? Lord, would we be transformed by your word? Would you help me? As I speak, Lord, to speak only that which brings glory to your name. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you're willing and able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. And as I read our passage, I want us to pay close attention to what this text says about the source of lies and the source of the truth. The source of lies and the source of the truth. First Timothy four, beginning in verse one. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. We will begin by examining the source of lies. And so, beloved, here is my first charge to you this morning. Don't devote yourself to the deceiver's lies. Don't devote yourself to the deceiver's lies. This will take us through verses 1 through 3. Well, Paul does not leave Timothy with any doubt that there will be some who end up exchanging the truth for a lie. And Paul's certainty doesn't come from any confidence that he has in his own ability to see into the future. Rather, his certainty is grounded in the Spirit of God. And you may have noticed, this is why Paul begins by saying, now the Spirit expressly says. That word expressly is kind of interesting. Other translations use the word explicitly or clearly. And so when it comes to the Lord declaring his word through his Spirit, there is no uncertainty whatsoever whatsoever. If the Holy Spirit is the one who speaks of these things, then we can be sure that they will happen. But what is it that the Spirit is saying here? Well, look with me at verse 1. The Spirit says, In later times, some will depart from the faith. And I think we should understand these later times to refer to what the Bible sometimes calls the last days. Although we might think Paul is speaking only of what's to come in the future, the witness of the New Testament reveals that these last days had already begun, even in Paul's time. The opening verses of the book of Hebrews is one of the clearest examples of this. You don't have to turn there, but listen to what the author says about these last days in Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Beloved, this means that we are in these later times. We are in these last days right now. And scripture is telling us that the living God is actively speaking to his people through his son and through his spirit. And in a day where we have access to thousands of different voices, right now, At our fingertips. His is the only voice that we can trust. And this was just as true for Timothy and for the Ephesians. Because as we saw in verse 1, those who would refuse to listen to his voice are those who would depart from the faith. Now, just to briefly pause here, when Paul uses these general terms like the faith or the truth, He's intending for us to fill this out in our minds as the entirety of the Christian faith and of the gospel as a whole. This is to say that truly biblical faith clings to the biblical gospel alone, which as we have clearly seen throughout 1 Timothy, our salvation comes through the person and work of Christ alone. But yet, tragically, as First Timothy 4 tells us, There will be some who abandon this faith, the only true faith, and they will abandon it for an imposter. These are the ones who devote themselves to the deceiver's lies. And Paul begins by showing us the causes of his deception, the causes of his deception in verses 1 through 2. The first cause of the devil's deception comes to us at the end of verse 1, through the teaching of deceitful spirits and demons. Bible scholars will often highlight the contrast Paul is making here between dependence on false spirits and dependence on the true spirit, the Holy Spirit. As John Stott once said, speaking himself under the influence of the spirit of truth, that's the Holy Spirit, Paul declares the false teachers to be under the influence of deceiving spirits. Or to quote another John of even higher authority than John Stott, the Apostle John says in 1 John 4, verse 6, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And here's what John says, By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Redeemer, there is only one spirit of truth. And this is why John warns his readers just a few verses earlier, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And here is the test. Does this teaching ground everything in its confession of Jesus Christ? The eternal Son of God who took on flesh and accomplished our salvation through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. If any teaching defines the gospel as Jesus plus fill in the blank, you can be certain that's a false gospel. And it is devoted to a false spirit. Because the true spirit, the Holy Spirit, testifies to the gospel that we see in the Bible. That salvation is completed by Christ alone. And for Paul, it's not enough for him to simply say that these teachings are false, but they are demonic. And beloved, this is why I'm warning you against the dangers of the deceiver, the source of all demonic teaching. And he wouldn't be called the deceiver if he wasn't actually successful in persuading some to abandon their profession of Christianity and to follow his ways instead. But I also think it's important for us to see that that Paul is consistent with the rest of the New Testament here. He's not saying that Christians can lose their salvation. But he is teaching that some who profess to be believers will fall away into the devil's deception, proving that they were never truly saved in the first place. To quote the apostle John again, he says, they went out from us that it might become plain that they are not of us. And for us, this means that these warnings in scripture are not to be taken lightly. Because it's true that if we devote ourselves to any other teaching that isn't grounded in scripture, we will begin to buy into the lies of the deceiver himself. And we must also see that this doesn't simply happen overnight. And this leads us to the second cause of his deception, the teaching of insincere liars with seared consciences. This word insincerity is better understood as hypocrisy. Following after the master deceiver, these false teachers are pretenders. Although they profess to follow the truth, They're living a lie. And by describing them this way, Paul follows the example of Jesus who frequently condemns the Pharisees as hypocrites in the Gospels. Jesus condemned them so severely in Matthew 23, he declared that their converts become twice as much a child of hell as themselves. Like the Pharisees, This teaching in Ephesus was disguised as the truth. And they were leading others to devote themselves to the deceiver's lies along with them. And the text tells us they have delved so deep into their own hypocrisy that their own consciences have been seared. This idea of the word seared, one commentator points out it's It's like a conscience being branded with a red-hot iron. And the one who is, is doing the searing is the devil himself. And again, this hasn't occurred in the blink of an eye. Musical artist Benjamin Gibbard got it right when he said, There's a long, slow fade to a darkened stage. And I hear you say, only a fool gives it away. Only a fool gives it away. And this illustrates the tragedy of a heart that has gone so far down the road of consistent belief in the deceiver's lies that that heart has lost all sensitivity to the spirit. Rather than a conscience that is alive and responsive to the spirit's conviction, these consciences have become lifeless and numb Now, if we contrast this with the faithful deacons that we saw in 1 Timothy 3, those who hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. But these faithless teachers have the furthest thing from a clear conscience. They have a seared conscience. And this is what the deceivers' lies do. They promise life and satisfaction. But in reality, they will only lead to death. Death and an unquenchable appetite for sin. But if we are to truly stand firm against these lies from the deceiver, we must not only understand the causes of his deception, but the content of his deception. The content of his deception. We see this in verse 3. So we've seen the causes. What exactly is it that these teachers are saying? as they lead others to depart from the faith. Well, verse 3 tells us that they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. And this is the second time in 1 Timothy that Paul has appealed to God's work in creation. If you remember all the way back to 1 Timothy 2, when Paul was making the case for the complementary roles of men and women in the congregation, Paul grounded his argument in the order of creation. Checkmate. Paul knows there's no better way for us to understand God's true intentions for humanity than to look at his work in creation. And so Paul pulls the creation argument out of his apostolic tool belt again in 1 Timothy 4. And in the face of false teachers forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from foods, Paul's saying, no, no. The institution of marriage was created by God. These foods were created by God. Don't refuse them. Receive them. And do so with a thankful heart. These teachings that Timothy was facing didn't come from God. They came from men who were devoted to the deceiver's lies. This is similar to what was happening to some of the Galatians who were adopting a false gospel of works. In their case, it was that circumcision was necessary for salvation. And listen to Paul's sobering rebuke in Galatians 5. He said to them, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. I don't think the warning gets any stronger than that. To be severed from Christ. To fall away from his grace. And this is what's at stake when we are faced with the deceiver's lies. And beloved, we must believe that God alone has established the boundaries of the Christian faith. That salvation is secured by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And remember that it was no work of yours that got you saved in the first place. Because the Bible tells us that if that was the case, it would only lead us to boast in ourselves. And this is likely what the false teachers were doing in Ephesus. Boasting in their ways as the right ways, as the true ways. When in reality, they were the ones who were departing from the faith. And they were bringing others with them. So if we put our trust in anything outside of the Lord and his word, we are rejecting the faith that has been completed in Christ. And just like we heard in our scripture reading from Romans 1, this will lead us to trust in the creation of man rather than the creator God. But there is hope for us to trust in our creator Paul clearly says at the end of verse 3 that those who believe and know the truth, that is the truth about Jesus Christ, will follow their creator. They will receive his truth by faith with thankful hearts. And so again, we see that the Christian faith is not neutral. Although Jesus was specifically referencing money in Matthew 6, 24, his principle is just as true here, where he said no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. The deceiver's lies are like a magnet that seeks to pull our hearts, attracting them to his ways. But thanks be to God that he draws the hearts of his people with something far more powerful, his truth. His ways are far better, amen? And unlike the deceiver, he will never make promises that he cannot keep. And so, beloved, here is my second charge to you this morning. Delight yourself in the Creator's truth. Delight yourself in the Creator's truth. This will take us through the end of the passage. Well, if believers are called to receive God's creation with thanksgiving, that means that his creation is worthy of our delight. And here's the truth about God, the creator of all things. He is good. And all that he created is good. If you remember back to Genesis 1, the phrase, and God saw that it was good, is repeated at the end of each of the six days of creation. And of course, following the creation of humanity, God declared that his creation was very good. And just like we've seen with numbers throughout the book of Revelation, it's no mistake that the goodness of creation is repeated seven times. This represents the perfection, the completeness of God's creation. And if God himself declares his own creation to be good, then how much more should we as his children uphold its goodness? Because God alone is creator and he alone declares what is good, he will never lead us into anything that is false. You can be sure of that. And because God will never deceive his people, we can be confident in the goodness of his truth. The goodness of his truth if we look just a few verses beyond our passage in chapter 4, verse 13, we see that Timothy is called to lead the Ephesians to be devoted not to the false teachers, but to the greatest teaching imaginable, the teaching of the scriptures. And at Redeemer, we firmly believe that this is our only source of truth. Unlike those in chapter 4, verse 1, who are devoted to false teachings and depart from the faith, What about those who would remain in the faith? Those who remain are devoted to the truth of Scripture. And in verse 16, Timothy is told that this commitment to God's truth will save both himself and his hearers. When Paul says this will save them, I think he's referring to what's happening in our passage, that they would be saved from this tragic departure from the faith. Beloved, this is why everything depends on whose word we trust. So I would ask you this morning, whose word are you trusting? Do you believe that only God's truth is truly good? Verse 4 reveals that if we believe in the goodness of his truth, rather than rejecting What God has created. We will receive it with thanksgiving. And you may have noticed that Paul has repeated this idea of receiving God's creation with thanksgiving in verses 3 and 4. And I think he's connecting the idea that those who believe and know the truth in verse 3 are also those who believe his creation to be good. And as I mentioned earlier, when Paul speaks of the truth, he's referring to the truth of the gospel what we call his good news. In other words, to know and believe his truth is to know and believe his goodness. But what about the fact that ever since Genesis 3, we live in a world that is plagued by sin? Although sin doesn't destroy the goodness of God's creation, it does distort it. Even if we only use the example of marriage from our text, we could list countless examples of how this good gift from the Creator has been distorted through our sin. But this doesn't cancel out the reality that God, in His wisdom, created marriage according to His own goodness. What a radical thing to believe in our day. In the midst of a world that's seeking to dismantle God's design for marriage altogether, Christians can firmly uphold the beauty and the goodness of the covenant union that's shared between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And why is it beautiful and good? It's only beautiful and good because God himself has created it. And again, as Paul clearly teaches, we are called to receive what he has created with thanksgiving. This is why the New Testament speaks of God as the giver of good gifts. The Apostle James understood this very well. Listen to James chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. See, James was concerned about the dangers of deception too. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from where? It's from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so we shouldn't be deceived as to where these gifts come from. They come from our Heavenly Father. And neither should we be deceived as how we should respond to them. The fact that they are called gifts implies that the right response to the Creator is thankful stewardship of His creation. But of course there is a wrong response to His gifts, abusing them through our sin. Looking at Paul's second example of food, we can't ignore the dangers of gluttony and drunkenness, which are undoubtedly sinful uses of the Creator's gifts. And although our understanding and our relationship to God's creation has been tainted by sin, this cannot mean that we reject it altogether, as the false teachers in, in Ephesus were teaching. They were doing so in a manner that proposed an alternative path, To the creator's truth. And they were departing from the faith. Because to reject God's creation. Is to reject him. And if that's true. We need his wisdom. To receive and to steward his creation. According to his design. How foolish would we be to claim. That we know how to handle these gifts. Better than the one who created them in the first place. This is the foolishness of those who would depart from the Christian faith for a counterfeit truth. Believing the lie that there is something better for us than what God has designed. Beloved, I hope that we all see that only the creator's truth is worthy of our delight. And because his truth never changes, we will never regret delighting in it. And this is because his truth isn't just good, it's holy. It's holy. And This is what we see in our final verse, the holiness of his truth. Now when we say that God's truth is holy, we mean that it is completely set apart in a class of its own. There's nothing that could possibly compare. The deceiver's worthless lies are no match for the creator's holy truth. Well, how is God's truth made holy? In verse 5, Paul tells us that it is made holy by the word of God. And when you and I say the word of God, we're typically referring to his written word, the Bible. But in this context, with Paul's consistent emphasis on creation, the word of God seems to be best understood as his spoken word. In other words, God's truth is holy because of the one who has Spoken it. The Holy Creator whose powerful words spoke all things into existence like that. But Paul also tells us that God's truth is not only made holy because God has said so, but also through the prayers of his people. And most Bible scholars understand prayer in this context to be something like a prayer of thanksgiving. And this would make sense alongside Paul's commands to receive his creation with thanksgiving. And here at Redeemer, we regularly pray a prayer of thanksgiving on the third Sunday of each month. And this prayer of thanksgiving always follows our corporate confession of his truth through a historical confession of faith. So in this sense, our prayer of thanksgiving is a response to the truth that we have already received from God. And this is exactly what Paul is teaching us in 1 Timothy 4. The Creator has spoken His truth. And through prayer, those who would remain faithful to Him express their agreement with what He has already declared to be good, true, and holy. By giving thanks to God through prayer, Christians delight themselves in the Creator's truth. And prayer is one of the most significant ways that we protect ourselves from being devoted to the deceiver's lies. And since we are called to take action through prayer, we see again that there is nothing neutral about this. Don't give in to the lie that you can have one foot in God's truth on Sunday and the other foot in the devil's lies Monday through Saturday. You will either commit yourself to one or to the other. And I hope you've heard this morning that God's truth alone is delightfully good. It is completely set apart from anything else that would be disguised as the truth. Beloved, his voice is the only one that we can trust until the very end. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Would you listen to him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your truth in your word. Lord, and that you do not hold back from warning us of the dangers of abandoning your truth for an imposter, for what the devil would disguise as truth when it is really a lie. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you keep those Those in this room who know the Lord, who delight in his truth, would you keep them? For those in this room who don't know you, Lord, would you lead them to turn from the devil's lies and to embrace God's truth by faith in Christ? Oh, Lord, we trust that only you can do this. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.